Oh God, thank you for giving to us this joyous season of the year. What would the world be like if there were no Christmas story? It's because there is that we have hope and courage and faith and love and peace and joy. But we are not unmindful of this hour in which we are living. And so today as we wrap this series, let today's teaching be crystal clear. For your glory and honor we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Some people have the knack for showing up unexpectedly. Have you noticed that? Even when they're not invited. I have been bemused, as the whole nation has, with this brouhaha over Tarek and Michaela Salihi's crashing the big White House party just a few nights ago. Have you, have you been following? You know, you're aware of this? Yeah. President Barack Obama and Michelle's very first state dinner in the White House. The hottest tickets in town. They're going to be hosting the Prime Minister of India and his lovely wife. 300 and some tickets are out there. And the Salahis, who didn't have tickets. Can you believe this? They got in. Pass one security point check after another security point check after another. Three of them. Hey, you're not on this list. Hey, you're... we're on the list. We're invited. Trust me. Let me tell you what. There's a lesson for university students in this one. When you are dressed to the nines, when you dress up, not down, doors will open for you. Some of you guys think that if you'll just dress down, you'll have it made. No, it's the other way around. Two guys at a plane counter, the guy in the t-shirt versus the man in the coat and tie. There's one seat left on the plane. Guess which one they give it to every time. Dress up if you want the door to open for you. All right, enough of that. Anyway. We know that the, that the uh, Salahis got in because they immediately began posting on their Facebook site pictures as proof. And here they are. Yep. There they are with up in the corner. That's Ram Emanuel. He is the chief of staff of the Obama administration. In the bottom corner, our well-known Vice President Joseph Biden, grinning because he gets to meet these guests who have been invited to his party. But we were all so relieved. At least they didn't get into the president himself. Hallelujah. Security was tight enough. And then the White House released this picture, and we discovered that they got all the way into the very heart of the matter. Some people have a way of showing up unexpectedly and even without an in invitation, as it so happens, in the stunning climax to our series, The Temple Today, the unexpected uninvited visitant. Open your Bible with me, please, to the book Scholars Believe was the first book written in the Bible. Same author as Genesis, but this book was written first, the book of Job. Open your Bible, please, to the book of Job. You didn't bring a Bible. This is one dramatic narrative. You've got a track for yourself. Pull the Pew Bible out. Let me give you the page number, page 346. The book of Job. Pull the Pew Bible out, page 346. Job chapter 1, verse 1 unforgettable story. The unexpected visitant. Job chapter 1. Can't find Job. It's just before the book of Psalms. Old Testament. Job chapter 1. Verse 1. 
coming on it with you right now. There it is. I'm going to be in the New International Version. If you have the Pew Bible, that will be the New King James. Let's, let's track this story for a moment. Job chapter 1, verse 1. In the land of Uz. All right? Let's go ahead and put those words on the screen. In the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. This man was blameless and upright. He feared God and shunned evil. A reputation to covet, by the way. It's known in the land. Verse 2, And he had seven, daughters, seven sons rather, and three daughters. And oh my, was he a wealthy businessman. You look at verse 3. There they are, all his animal holdings, flocks and herds. We're not talking about a backyard, barnyard here. We're talking about a massive ranch. He's a businessman. He deals with cattle. And he's done very well. Look at the end of verse uh, 3. He was the greatest man among all the people in the East. We would call him today an Arab because that's where he's from. He is an Arab. And he is a great man of all in that region. Now, verse 4, we learn that the boys, his boys, seven of them. You know, it's the other way around. Is it the seven sons? How many sons? Yeah, seven sons. The boys used to love to throw parties. And so every now and then they invite the sisters to come. Total of ten in the houses. Today it's here. Next week we'll be over in your home. Kids having a party. Anything wrong with that? Nothing wrong with that at all. But Father Job, this is, the, this is the depth of his commitment. Father Job is, you know, I never know. what my, The kids never invite me. So I don't know what's going on in these parties. But just in case, just in case, watch this. Verse 5, when a period of feasting had run its course, Job would send and have the children purified. By that, early in the morning, here's what he would do. Early in the morning, he would sacrifice a burnt offering for each of them, thinking, Perhaps, just maybe, my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Just in case. I'm going to be a praying dad, even though the children have left home. You better thank God for that daddy of yours, that mama of yours that still prays for you. Where did they get the idea from? They got it from this Arab parent who said, I don't care what's going on, I'm going to keep praying for my kids every day of the way. And by the way, if you're a young papa or a young mama... Take a, take a page out of Job's playbook. Pray for your kids for the rest of your life. Ah. And, and so the verse ends, this was Job's regular custom. Now, hold on, keep going. Verse 6, one day the angels... Now, I've got to tell you that in the Hebrew, it's actually, and the other translations have it a little, I believe, more accurate than the NIV, because it's the sons of Elohim, or the sons of God. It could be the angels... I believe there are more than angels involved here. One day, the angels, the sons and daughters of God, came to present themselves before the Lord. Do you know where this is happening? It's happening in the temple. What temple? The one temple in the universe, in heaven. This is God's palace and representatives from His sprawling intergalactic kingdom. Remember in this series, 47 billion light years to the edge of His kingdom. This is a huge kingdom. Representatives come together. This is a, boy, this is the hottest ticket in town. You want to be at the temple for this one. But somebody not on the list also got in. Take a look at this, verse 6. One day the angels came near to present themselves before the Lord and Satan, because that's the Hebrew, the adversary. It's not a proper name. We've turned it into a proper name, but he's the adversary. The adversary, not on the guest list. The adversary 
also came with them. And the Lord said to Satan, hey, you're not on this list. Where'd you come from? Kind of what's happening. And Satan answered the Lord from roaming through the earth and going back and forth. Oh, you're from planet earth, huh? God, of course, knows. Hey, verse 8, have you considered my servant Job? I'm telling you what, Satan, there is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright. He is a man who fears God and shuns evil. Pretty impressed, aren't you? And Satan looks back into the face of Almighty God and he says, rubbish. He's nobody. Notice the reply. Verse 9, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not put a hedge around him and his household and everything he has? I'll tell you what, God. You you bought his friendship. That's what you did. That little blessing machine of yours will make anybody a friend. You've got this hedge around him. By the way, friend of Jesus, that is the truth. You've got a hedge around you. And you ought to be glad for that hedge. Doesn't mean you can't get hit, as we find out. Doesn't mean you're immune to tragedy, but you got a hedge. Huh. You, you have blessed the work of his hands so that his flocks and herds are spread throughout the land. Ah, but God, stretch out your hand, verse 11, and strike everything he has, and he will surely curse you to your face. Promise. The Lord said to Satan, very well then, verse 12, Everything he has is in your hands, but on the man himself do not lay a finger. Then Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. And what ensues is that all the animal holdings of Job are decimated, slaughtered, and gone. The house where the ten kids are partying is hit by a natural disaster. By the way, insurance companies still call it an act of God. But because of the story of Job, we know it's an act of Satan. And the house collapses and he loses all ten kids in one fell swoop. Everything he has, except his wife and the house they're in, is gone. How does Job respond? Take a look at this. At this, verse 20, this is verse 20. At this, Job got up, tore his robe, shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground and worshipped. Verse 21, and he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. And in all of this, Job did not sin by charging God with any wrongdoing. And as it turns out, there is another convocation in the temple above and the same crowd comes and the same uninvited visitant shows up. Chapter 2, verse 1. On another day the angels and the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came with them to present himself before the Lord and the little routine takes place again. Hey, where are you from? I'm from earth. Hey, By the way, yeah, speaking of earth, what do you think about my man Job, huh? He's doing all right. And Satan is ready. Look at this. Verse 4. Skin for skin. Here's the deal, God. Skin for skin. A man will give all he has for his own life. But stretch out your hand, verse 9, and strike his flesh and bones, and he will surely curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, very well then, he is in your hands. But read my lips. You keep him alive. You leave him alive. And Satan goes out. Sure enough, verse 7, he went out from the presence of the Lord, and he afflicted Job with painful sores from the soles of his feet to the top of his head. 
Then Job took a piece of broken pottery and scraped himself with it as he sat among the ashes. And his wife finally came to him in verse 9 and said, Are you still holding on to your integrity? Curse God and die. And he replied, You are talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? And in all of this, Job did not sin in what he said. Stakes exponentially higher now. Touch the man. You may touch the man. By the way, when we get touched, disease or death, let let it be clear. Job 1 makes it clear. And 2, that is not a divine attack. That is a satanic attack every single time. You may touch the man. Keep him alive for me. Whoa. What in the world? What out of this world is going on here? Let me put it to you plain and simple, ladies and gentlemen. God is being judged in the life of one of His friends. That's what's happening. The deeper issue in this narrated episode is not Job. Implicit in this drama is the understanding that the focus of the adversary is not on Job. His frontal assault is on God Himself. You aren't the God you claim to be. You can't find a friend who will stick to you, stick to you through thick and thin. Tell you what, turn on that little blessing machine and he will spit in your face and die. Implicit in the drama is Satan's attack on the government and character of God. For you see, God is on trial in his friend. That point is so critical. I wish you'd take your study guide out right now and scribble it down. Will you pull your study guide out? Find it in your, your uh, Advent worship bulletin. Pull it out. Didn't get a study guide. Hold your hand up. Our friendly ushers are coming your way all the way up into the balcony and overflow as well. Just say, listen, I need an extra study guide in this pew. Hold your hand up. We'll get a study guide to you. That point is so critical. And those of you who are watching on television right now, we're delighted to have you. I want you to have the same study guide. So let me put the website where you can get that study guide. Put it on your screen right now. There you see it, www.pmchurch.tv. That's our website, pmchurch.tv. You're looking for the series, The Temple, which, by the way, comes to an end today. Part 11, it comes to an end. And by the way, let me also say, those of you watching or those here, if you have not, if you've missed a piece along the way or all of the pieces, they're sitting at that website, the podcast, the videocast, everything's there. The study guides are there. Click onto that website and you'll, you'll have uh, this entire series. But you're looking for this last teaching, which is, which is entitled, The Unexpected Visitant. And right beneath that title, you'll see the word study guide. Click on study guide. you have the same study guide. Let's write it down before we forget it. God is on trial in the life of his friend Job. God on trial? Come on. You, you can't tell me that you can judge the judge of the universe, can you? Take a look. The only other text that we will turn to is in the New Testament. Take a careful look. Most of you have read the book of Romans and never noticed this text before. I want you to see it today. Go back, uh, go forward in your Bible to the book of Romans. Paul's mighty championing of the everlasting gospel. Romans chapter 3. Page uh, 758 in your pew Bible. Take a look at a line that most people just fly right through. They're so excited about Paul's climaxing... Defense of God's everlasting gospel. But take a look at this line. Now, we need to get a run into the line, so we'll begin in verse 3. Romans chapter 3, verse 3. Paul's writing here, What if some... Okay, so, we can, so you can find somebody who doesn't have faith. What, what, what if you do? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Verse 4, God forbid. Not at all. No way. Even if you find some. 
who've lost faith. No. Let God be true and every man a liar. Now, hold on. As it is written, so that you, O God, may be proven right when you speak and prevail when you judge. There it is right there. Did you catch it? Say, hey, wait a minute, Dwight. It just says that God will judge. That's not that stunning a line. We've already established in this series that God is the judge of the universe. Ah, but I tell you what, my friend, in the Greek, the NIV missed it. In the Greek, the line is stunning. Let me tell you something. The Greek voice here, that last line, you remember from freshman comp days, every verb has a voice. It can be an active voice or a passive voice. You remember those? Do you need to, shall we repeat freshman comp? No, you know. Active voice. Here's active voice. I hit the ball. That's active. Passive voice is when the verb acts back on the subject. So, I hit the ball, active, passive. I was, I was hit by the ball. Active voice, God judges. Passive voice, God is judged. The Greek here is in the passive. And that's why the New American Standard Bible nails it along with the King James and the New King James. Let me put it on the screen for you. You'll need, you'll need to fill it in in your study guide. Here's the New American Standard Version of Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Let's put it on the screen, please. Romans chapter 3, verse 4. So that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you are judged. Would you write that in? Are judged. As it is written that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Hey, listen, you can't judge the the judge of the universe, can you? Apparently, ladies and gentlemen, you can We just read it. You will prevail, O God, when you are judged. That is precisely what's happening in the long-ago drama about Job. Could it be that that is precisely what is happening in today's drama about you and about me? Could it be that God is being judged in the lives of His friends, especially today? Now, hold on. Is there any corroboration of this stunning reality in the Bible? I want, to run, I want to run some pieces of evidence by you. You be the jury. You check it out. Let me just run these by you. Number one, do you remember that golden piece of furniture that sits all by itself in what's called the most holy place of the earthly sanctuary or temple? What is the name of that single piece of golden furniture in the temple or the sanctuary? Remember what it was? It was the Ark of the Covenant. In fact, let's put a, uh, an artist's portrayal on the screen. The Ark of the Covenant. Now, I want you to look at that, at, at that for a moment. That ark was a resplendent symbol or representation of the very throne. That's what it was to be. A symbol of the very throne of Almighty God. Which is why, by the way, keep looking at the picture, God directed Moses to have two golden angels carved placed on either side of the solid gold plate that we call the mercy seat. Solid plate beneath those angels. And here's what's interesting. When God gave the instructions for the craftsmen to build this model... He said, I want you to make sure the angels' faces are pointed in the right direction. What direction did God require the faces to be pointed in? Let's put Exodus chapter 25, verse 20 on the screen here. The cherubim, those angels, are to have their wings spread upward, overshadowing the cover, the mercy seat with them. Now watch this. The cherubim are to face each other, looking toward the cover. They're facing each other, but the faces are pointed down at the symbol of God's throne. So here's the question for you. I want you to tell me. Why is this? Have you ever wondered? 
Why are the two angels' faces looking down upon the Ark of the Covenant and not looking down upon the altar of sacrifice? After all, the altar of sacrifice where the animals were sacrificed, that's this towering symbol of Calvary. Isn't that right? Why didn't God say, put the two angels so that they're on the edge and they're looking down at Calvary? Instead, all the way inside the most holy place, that's where the angels are looking down on the mercy seat. Now remember, the Ark of the Covenant, only one day a year is it dramatically front and center. The great Day of Atonement, in which they enact the final judgment of the human race. Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Clifford Goldstein, who used to be a Jew, is now a Seventh-day Adventist Christian, brood is, is brooding over this. I'll put the words on the screen for you. You'll need to fill them in in your study guide. Notice, notice how he's reasoning here. Now, these are Goldstein's words. Now, if everything that the heavenly host needed to know about the plan of salvation was revealed at the cross, then when the Lord made the sanctuary model, which is a symbol of the plan of salvation, why didn't He place those two cherubim who symbolize the heavenly host's interest in salvation, why didn't He put them over the altar of burnt offerings looking down at what symbolized the cross? Instead, God placed them all the way in the second apartment looking down at the judgment. Mercy. Jot that in. They're looking down, not at the cross, but at the judgment. Oh, yes, absolutely. Jesus, when He cries out, it is finished on Calvary. There is no question in all the universe that Calvary is salvation's mighty, shining apex and summit. No question. But, clearly, not all the questions in the universe were answered at the cross. Not for humanity. Not for the angels. Can that be corroborated in the New Testament? Let me run two more pieces by you. I'm making a case. First case, Ark of the Covenant. Case number two. Jot this down. Ephesians chapter 3. This is Paul writing. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. By the way, these words are written 30 years after Calvary. God's intent was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. Isn't that something? 30 years after Calvary, something needs to be taught to the rulers and authorities in heaven. What is this? According to His eternal purpose, which He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. Something beyond Calvary still has to be impressed upon those minds in the heavenly realms. And jot this second verse down, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 9. Paul, same author, writing, We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe. Amazing. We have been made a spectacle to the whole universe, to angels as well as men and women. I repeat, I praise God for His unspeakable gift at Calvary, but Calvary clearly did not answer all the questions in the universe. Charges raised by the vicious attacks of the fallen Satan. Questions still existed. And so would you jot this down? This is this, from this classic on the life of Jesus, the desire of ages. Put it on the screen for you. At the cross, Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer by shedding the blood of the Son of God. He had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Yet, 
Now hold on. Yet, Satan was not then destroyed. The angels did not even then, would you write that in? Did not even then understand all that was involved in the great controversy. The principles at stake were to be more fully revealed. And for the sake of man, Satan's existence must be continued. Man as well as angels must see the contrast between the prince of light and the prince of darkness. We must choose whom we will serve. End quote. Ladies and gentlemen, the biblical record is clear. Not all the questions about God and His governance were answered at the cross. Not for the universe, not for the human race. So here's the question. Could it be for that reason why God allows Himself to be judged at the end of time? Is that why the angels are gazing down at His throne of judgment? Look at it here. Romans chapter 3, verse 4. Read it again. So that you, O God, may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you are judged. Could it be that God is on trial today in the lives of His friends? Huh? Could it be? And if that is true, then could it be that the Bible teaching of an end-time judgment where we have been focusing all the time on this dock. You know what the dock is in the courtroom? The dock is that little four-walled place where the defendant sits. Could it be we've had the wrong person in the dock all the time? We've had you and me in the dock. Somebody else is in that dock. The unexpected visitant in his own courtroom sitting in the dock. Consider for a moment the stunning implications for you and me. If this notion, look, look, if the notion is true, consider what this means. That God Himself would be on trial in His own judgment. Now, I need you to just hang on. Put your pen down. There's no study guide. We're not going to look up a Bible verse. We're just going to think a bit and just string some thoughts together. The most important three words in all the Bible, what are they? God is love. Do you believe that? Is God love? But of course. So, If God loves all His creation, and by the way, would He love His fallen creation like He loves His unfallen creation? Would that be true about God's love? But of course. If God is love, and He loves His entire creation, that means He must remain passionately committed to preserving love's inalienable right. Hold on now. Do you know that love has a shining right? With God's love, you have a right that can never, ever be taken from you. Love's inalienable right is this. The freedom to choose. I'm telling you what, girl. That boy is telling you, I love you. I love you with all my heart. And he is not giving you the freedom to respond to that love. I'm telling you, it is not love. It can be rape. It can be force. But it is not love. True or false? Love, in order to be loved, not only has to give you the right to say yes, it also has to give you the right to say no. God has to give the universe the right to say no. Or it's not love. Therefore, because... His, now, hang, hang in there with me. Don't, 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 don't bail out now, please. Stunning conclusion. Therefore... Because His love has guaranteed the freedom of every intelligent being in the universe to decide for or against Him. Listen to this. God made the faithful decision at Calvary. God made the faithful faithful decision at Calvary to allow the great controversy to go beyond and after the cross. I'm going to ask you a question. Could everything have ended at the cross? Hmm? Did God win at the cross? Oh, yes, He did. It is finished. 
All right, we won. Lucifer, where are you? All right, where are you angels that follow Lucifer? Any sinners left? The rest of you, come on home. Glad to have you. Glad to have you. Could he have done that? But of course he could. He could have ended everything right there. But he didn't. Why not? Why not? Why do we have to have these thousand, two thousand years to go on? Ah. God makes the decision to go on so that every single satanic charge against him can be adequately refuted and logically, effectively negated. Because if God lives, if, if God leaves, rather, listen carefully now, if God leaves a single one, uno, one doubt in this universe, He has a seed that yet can bloom into the ugly horror of rebellion all over again. There cannot be one question left. Every charge has to be answered. Every charge. You know what's amazing to me? Is that when you read the book of Job, and this came to me this last week just brooding over this, when you read the book of Job, it is clear what the satanic charges against God were and still are. This isn't in your study guide, but let me just run these by. I'll put them on the screen for you. I want you to brood with me now. Just think about it. These are the charges that God has to have answered. Charge number one. Charge number one. The story of Job effectively showcases this charge, and that is that God's government is unjust and unfair. He has suppressed the freedom of His creatures. I'm telling you what, God, you have just bought the boy. You bought him. Don't tell me there's freedom in your, in your kingdom. You bought him. Charge number one. Charge number two. Satanic charge number two that God's ways are not love. You are manipulating him just like a puppeteer. You're pulling all the strings. You're making sure he responds to you the way you need him to respond. Charge number two. Charge number three that God's law is impossible to obey. Give me a little bit of leash here with him, God, and I'm going to promise you he will turn on you and become a rebel like me. Can't do it. It's impossible. Charge number four, that God's friends at best are fair-weather friends. I'm telling you, He is going to curse you to your face when I'm through with Him. You have no friends on earth. Trust me. And finally, charge number five, that even for the few friends God has, their sins are so deep that they cannot be forgiven and consequently should not be saved. And by the way, that's the argument of Job's comforters. You must be a bad dude. Why would all of this bad stuff happen to you? That's the, that's the charge. Nobody can be saved on this planet. The only way God can defend His self-sacrificing love, which is the grand premise of His kingdom, the only way God can possibly effectively, successfully refute these satanic charges will be for God... Hold on now, hold on. This, gets even, this goes even deeper. It will, it will necessitate God Himself taking the stand in His own courtroom and become the judged. The judge becomes the judged. One last time, let's take a look at this judgment scene from Daniel chapter 7. 
Verse 9, As I looked, Daniel writes, thrones were set in place. This is in the temple above. And the Ancient of Days took his seat and his clothing was as white as snow and the hair of his head was, like, was white like wool and his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze. Verse 10, And a river of fire was flowing coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands attended him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. And here we go. The court was seated and the books were opened. You know, we used to read those numbers, you and I, and we've done the calculation and it's over a hundred million. Now, now let, let's just get real now. A little reality check time. Do you suppose a hundred million, just take the number that we're given, over a hundred million celestial observers would show up for that, for that court scene if it were just your name and mine that was being called up? Do you think anybody's going to show up? When they call your name, they call my... Hey, Dwight! A hundred million? You kidding? We have an overinflated sense of our own importance. Somebody else, somebody else is in the dock, and the entire universe, with bated breath, is watching. That's what's going on. But, now this gets even deeper. But, because the proof is in the pudding. Have you ever heard that phrase? Come on, this is Christmas time, so we can talk about pudding, can't we? The proof is in the pudding. Isn't this true? And by the way, it's the English that make the pudding, not the Americans. We've got jello, they have pudding. If you're the one cooking up the pudding, you can't do this to me. You cannot do this to me, because I'm over at your house. You can't come walking out of that kitchen with that steaming bowl. You cannot come out here and say, Hey, Dwight, I want to tell you something. This, will be, this is going to be the most delectable pudding you have ever eaten in human history. Here you go. If you did that to me, do you know what I would say? I'd say, Give me a spoon. Because I'll be the judge of that. Isn't that right? The, the cook can never judge what the cook has created. Somebody else has to come along and say, give me that spoon. I'll be the judge of what's in that pudding. Ladies and gentlemen, that is precisely why God can't throw open His arms and say, trust me, this is the way it is. You know me. I did it. No, 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 no. no. Let us be the judge of that. Give us a spoon. And because of that, because God's self-testimony will not be admissible for the court, it turns out that the most convincing admissible testimony regarding the truth of God's governance of this universe will have to be the testimony of those who have lived on this contested planet for themselves. The proof will have to be in the pudding. They will have to give the testimony. Thus, it will be necessary for God's government to be judged through the court records of the lives of those earth children of His who, like Job, are already on record professing loyalty to Him. If, you're not, if, if you don't like the pudding, you're not going to be on the stand. Trust me. You never, I never like the cook. I just never like the cook. We're not going to ask you then. The, test is in the, the proof is in the pudding. Somebody here who has tasted the pudding will put you on the stand. Tell us, how does he taste? That's what's going on. 
self-testimony, inadmissible in the court, just like here below. I understand, God says, I understand. You can't just take my word for it. You'll have to examine them. These are my friends. Examine them as closely as you wish. There is no other way for the questions of an onlooking universe to be answered but that they, the friends of God, give admissible testimony from their evidentiary records. And on the basis of that testimony, the verdict will be made. Isn't that amazing? All this time, we thought we were the ones in the dock. And it turns out, God is the defendant on trial because of Satan. What a God. I mean, you think about it. What a God. So vulnerable. So transparent. You know what he's saying? I put my whole kingdom on the line. Check it all out. I will R-I-S-K. I will take an R-I-S-K. I will take the greatest risk that can be taken. And I allow you to decide through the testimony, the admissible testimony of these who are my friends. So here's the question, ladies and gentlemen. What kind of pudding is your life? What kind of proof is my life? Living as we are right now in the hour of His judgment, if God were to call you or me to the stand today as a character witness for Him, what would the universe hear? What would the universe see? Your life and my life. Let me share with you a quotation and then end with a burden on my heart. Here's the quotation. Put it on the screen. You'll have to fill it in. From that apocalyptic classic, Great Controversy. As the planets tell us that there is a great light in heaven whose glory they are made, by whose glory they are made bright. Look at Earth. Does Earth have any natural light? No. We got a little bit of reflected light, but we have no natural light. Does Mercury have any natural light? No. Mars, Jupiter, Saturn, no. Everybody's borrowing light. From whence cometh that light? From the sun. All right? So even so as it is with the planets. Now keep reading. So Christians are to make it manifest that there is a God on the throne of the universe whose character, that's the key word, jot it down, whose character is worthy of praise and imitation. The graces of His Spirit, the purity and holiness of His character will be manifest in His witnesses, end quote. Did you catch that, ladies and gentlemen? Character witnesses in the end time judgment. That's what God is needing from you and me. That's it. Character witnesses. In fact, keep your pen moving. For it is clear that in the final judgment, the character of God will be on trial in the character witness of His friends. One more line. The only way for God's character to be exonerated is for your character and mine to be examined. The proof is in the pudding. That's it. And for that reason, you and I have gone to the temple all this semester long. Because you know what? It really does matter what we do with Jesus. He can be this distant Savior. Oh, fine. Or He can be an upfront, in-your-face, by-your-side Lord who because of His power unleashed at Calvary 
can take anything. I mean anything that you and I are struggling with right now. He says, I not only pardon you, I not only wash you clean, I can keep you. I can free you. Yeah, for that reason. We have gone to the temple again and again because it really does matter what we do with Jesus. And guess what? It really does matter how we live this life. Can I have your attention for just this last appeal? You know what that means, don't you? No, seriously. You know what that means? The prayerless, my days of prayerless, careless living have got to come to an end. The new year is almost here. And Jesus says, hey, boy, girl, I have everything you need so that you can live as boldly and radically for me as my friend Job did. I have everything you need. I am able. I am able. If you just give me your life. You know what I want from you? Please, he says, I beg of you. I can't take the stand. My testimony is inadmissible. I need a character witness. Would you be willing to be the man who takes the stand for me? Would you be willing to be the woman who takes the stand for me? Just tell them. Just tell them about our friendship. I can't take the stand. I need you. You know, when the Bible teaching is put in the dramatic, stark contrast that it always is, there isn't a third ground. It's either one or the other. Do you know what that means? Kind of embarrassing to say this, but do you know what that means? That means that my life, okay, I'm not talking about your life. My life is either aiding God or abetting the other side. There isn't, a third, there isn't a third stance. Well, I'll stand right here and I'll just kind of cover, hedge my bet for a little longer. There is no third stance. It's God in Calvary offering unleashed and unlimited power for you and me. What's the other side? Not, not, not even going to name His name. He doesn't deserve the press. But ladies and gentlemen, at the end of this temple series, one question for us all. Would you be willing to go on record before the observers in this court? I, by His grace, will step forward and be a character witness. For him. Would you be willing to? You're not making a statement to me. You're not making a statement to this group. But you make a statement to that being that is with you 24-7. I'm willing, by the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, professionally, personally, socially, to offer my life by His grace as a character witness for God. Would you be willing to
to make that commitment on the eve of a new chapter and a new year. Now I need to say to you, before you stand or way standing, that means that like Job, you do everything in tandem with your forever friend. You still go to the party. You still go to the party. But you take your forever friend with you and become for him in that gathering a character witness for your Lord. This holiday? Yeah. This chapter of my life? Yeah. Please. Jesus is coming soon. And so if you wish to offer your life as a character witness to God, I'd like to invite you to stand right now. And by that standing, say, God, I mess up. I melt down. I know the story. I know the history. But by your grace, through the power unleashed at Calvary, the cleansing and the enabling, I offer my life as a character witness for you. Let's sing it one more time, this old gospel hymn, one stanza that we've sung several times. I'll put the words on the screen. Help me, teach me, Father, what to say. Teach me, Father, how to pray. Teach me all along the way how to be like Jesus. Let's sing that. Sing that chorus again. Sing it a bit quieter. Sing it a bit slower as our benedictory prayer. Father, you know the longing of our hearts. We sing it to you. 
What else is there? What should we live for? If all of history is coming to focus and you yourself sit in the dock today, then, oh God, it is the least we can do to stand as did your friend Job and declare that by your grace, through the power of Calvary's Lord, we choose to be character witnesses for the God who has emptied all of heaven to win back our love. Father, we can never repay you. Never, never, never. But we offer you what we have. Take us as your character witnesses for the new chapter ahead. And may those words of Scripture be true now unto Him who is able to keep us from falling and to present us spotless before His throne with great joy unto the only wise God, our Savior, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. Let all the people say, Amen.